There we go. We're starting. Okay, we're live. Hi, this is William Ramsey. Welcome to William Ramsey Investigates. On today's show, I have a very special guest. His name is John Glatt, and he published a book in July 2021. Title of the book is Golden Boy, A Murder Among the Manhattan Elite. Really fascinating true crime book, which I finished. Uh, this is not Mr. Glatt's first book. He has actually written 25 true crime books and five biographies. He has more than 2 million books currently in print all over the world. And he is acknowledged to be one of the best true crime writers working today. His first book, Rage and Roll, Bill Graham and the Selling of Rock, was published in 1993 to critical acclaim. Two years later, he wrote Lost in Hollywood, The Fast Times and Short Life of River Phoenix, a well-received biography on the tragic movie star. His next book was The Chieftains, an authorized biography, which he published in 1997. And he saw him nominated for the 2000 Grammy in the spoken word category. He also wrote in 1998 the well-received The Ruling House of Monaco, the story of a tragic dynasty which uncovered many new revel revelations about the Grimaldis. Uh, Mr. Glad has appeared on scores of television and radio programs all over the world, including ABC 2020, Dateline NBC, Fox News, Discovery ID, BBC World, and A&E Biography. But again, we're going to talk about this book that he just published. Again, the title is Golden Boy, A Murder Among the Manhattan Elites. So, Mr. John Glatt, are you there? Yes, I am. Hi, William. Hi. Well, thanks for agreeing to the interview. For people who may, you have a very long investigative journalist career, for people who may not have heard of your background, can you talk a, a little bit about your background and what led you to write this book, Golden Boy? Uh, yes, yeah, sure. I mean, I've... Uh started as a journalist in London, England for many years before coming over to America uh, in the early 80s. And uh, I've done a lot of things since then. And I've been doing true crime for the last uh, 20 years or so. And I think this uh, golden boy, which is the story of uh, Thomas Gilbert Jr., is such an interesting case that right from the beginning, uh, January 2015, I kind of got into it. Uh, the publisher agreed to commission me to do it, and uh, it took me about six years to actually produce the book because it, there were so many twists and turns on the way. And the legal case almost just kind of finished up recently, if I remember correct, but uh, you were in New York at the time of these events, correct? Oh, sure, yeah. I lived just a few blocks away from where they happened. Right. So can you, for people who may not have heard the story about uh, the Gilbert family and what happened. Can you provide a little bit of background, please? Sure, yeah. I mean, the Gilberts were a very socially prominent family for many years in Manhattan and the Hamptons. Uh, they belonged to the best clubs. They moved in the best circles, and they were very well known. And uh, Thomas Gilbert Sr., in fact, was uh, very successful in the financial world. On Wall Street, he was a hedge funder. Uh, he had his eldest son was Thomas Gilbert Jr. And there was a daughter too. Uh, Thomas Gilbert Jr. was doing, did okay until he became a teenager. And then suddenly he was going to the best schools like Buckley uh, and then Deerfield School. Uh, but then things started going awry and there were mental problems that ran in the family that struck him from an early, as an early teenager. And he became very, very paranoid, uh, thought everything was uh, poisoned against him. He became particularly paranoid of his father. And for the next 10, 15 years or so, this is what led up to 
what happened that fateful day in January 2015. Right. And he, I mean, he was kind of unusual because he was super privileged, a really good looking guy, like 6'3", athletic. So he mm-hmm. had almost like a, you know, a store, a fairy tale life in a way, but there was just something about him that he did not, uh, he just didn't adapt. I mean, he graduated from Princeton too, correct? Yeah, he graduated from Princeton a couple of years late because there were some drug problems on the way and he took a sabbatical for a couple of years. So he graduated pretty late from Princeton and then he had all these hopes of starting his own hedge fund. But unfortunately, he failed to launch because there were so many mental problems there uh, that he really could not hold down a job, any kind of job whatsoever. And his social life went to pieces. Uh, He became jealous of friends jealous of girlfriends and things like that. And it really was a sort of torturous life that he led. Which is odd too, because he had all the privileges. He was getting money from his dad. And your book is replete with stories of him traveling on like elite surfing vacations all the time. Oh, I'm going to go on a vacation. So he had, he kind of had a strange kind of mix of this uh, golden boy Manhattan elite, but um, also these troubled Past and, and at times it was psychiatrist, right? Lots of years of psychiatry. Yeah. And part of the problem was because he was so good looking and he dressed well, he had very, you know, high class friends and everything, that it, people didn't see that there was something wrong with him at the beginning initially until they started to talk to him. And he could hardly carry on a conversation towards the end, you know? And people immediately saw there was something gone wrong with him that wasn't quite right. And can you talk about kind of his elite uh, clubs that he was in and kind of his elite school friends? I mean, he was really in a rarefied class, American class. Would you agree with that? Yeah, it was top-notch class, really. Yeah, I mean, he belonged to the best clubs in the Hamptons. He belonged, as his whole family did, to the River Club in Manhattan, which is ultra-exclusive. You know, you just don't get in there uh, without being nominated by some top-class people. So, I mean, he really did move in rarefied circles. And to the outward appearance, he seemed to have everything going for him. But inside, there was a seed of psychosis uh, turned into schizophrenia and stuff that became worse and worse as the years progressed. His parents could tell something was going wrong there. Uh, They uh, took him to a barrage of psychiatrists. But the trouble with Tommy was that he didn't want to be seen as mentally ill or anything. So he would put on an act. You know, he would act as if everything was all right. He wouldn't take any medication he was prescribed. And things just kind of worsened over the years. Right. And he seemed to really, he had this social clique, like he had friends. He lived with this, his relationship with this kind of other privileged kid, Smith, um, can you Peter describe Smith, what, yeah. yeah, Peter Smith, can you describe their relationship? Because it seemed like that would have been a perfect fit for him, but it, he could not adapt to, you know, yeah. kind of normal behavior. Well, Peter Smith Jr. came from a, an equally distinguished family. You know, his, his father was a very, very wealthy financier, and they'd gone to the same um, prep school together, Buckley, and then they reconnected in the Hamptons many years later. Peter Smith could see that there was something uh, untoward about Tommy. Tommy said that he was unhappy with his father and Peter Smith invited him to come and move in and live with him because he had a beautiful apartment in Brooklyn. 
So they became roommates for a while, but really Tommy became very, very jealous of Peter, who was very successfully socially and academically and financially, and was getting his stuff together, you know, in his business, while Tommy wasn't progressing at all. And this led to, uh, you know, a lot of uh, jealousy and whatever, which broke up their relationship. And it's turned violent, you know, and eventually Tommy really got it out for Peter Smith. He he attacked him in the street in Brooklyn after they split up and there was a restraining order taken out against him. Right. So you see these kind of early troubles, like he assaulted him, kneed him in the face, mm. kind of this big yeah. guy. Yeah. Um, so right. you had these kind of violent things, but it's interesting. So like he's working, they, all of the stories of him as these women are attracted to him, but then he goes to social groups and doesn't say anything or mumbles and he wasn't very well spoken for somebody from Princeton, right? Exactly. I mean, he really wasn't very fluent. He couldn't carry on a conversation, people told me that knew him. And I mean, he had these aspirations of becoming a hedge founder where you, you know, you have to socialize, you have to network, you have to sell yourself basically to uh, other people, you know, to get financing. And he was very ill-equipped to deal with that. You know, he couldn't hold a conversation. And when he started trying to sell them, you know, financial stuff, he didn't seem to know what he was talking about. And they kind of turned their backs on him. And this kind of fed into making him even more paranoid, in fact. Yeah, and he had like a weird name for his hedge fund, Mameluke, which is like a kind of strange yeah. group of tribal group out of Egypt. And he had all the yeah. opportunities. Like he could have been with his dad learning right from, huh. you know, some a source of training, but he's, he couldn't even manage that. So it's kind of like a mix of peculiarness yeah. and kind of a sadness too. Very sad. I mean, his dad went out of his way to try and enlist him in the family business. It was a hedge fund. Uh, it was doing very, very well on high tech. Uh, stuff and he would invite Tommy to meetings, uh, to meet backers, to other stuff and strategize and business wise. And Tommy just refused to have anything to do with it. He didn't want to have anything to do with his dad's business. And as things progressed, he didn't even want to communicate with his father. He refused to take his calls. He blocked him if they both played tennis at the River Club. If they happened to be in the club at the same time, he would just walk out and leave his father standing there. So it was very embarrassing for the family, I think. Yeah, and they were very they were very concerned. His family was very concerned with appearances and it seemed mm. like that was a an important element of their social status. So he kind of was and they I mean just him talking to his mom, he's always getting money, he's asking for money. I need another 450. I need another and they financed his his apartment so he was kind of a spoiled, privileged kid. Would you agree with that? Well, he was living off his parents, basically. At the age of 30, when this all happened, he was still living off his parents. And the catalyst of the murder uh, really came when the parents finally realized that they couldn't keep on giving him money like that. They were having problems, too, financially. And they needed to kind of shake him out of this uh reliance he had on them so they started cutting his uh, allowance uh slowly over a period of a few months and uh it kind of it got to him and this is what caused him to sort of go crazy i think and turn on his father and but he had some other illegal activities even before 
uh, the event happened, right? Yeah, well, I mean, after after the arrest, police found he had uh, equipment for forging cre credit cards, blank credit cards, and printing them. And, uh, you know, he was often on the black web coming into nefarious things. Uh, there was also this violent streak that nobody really picked up on that should have done. I mean, two or three years before this all happened, he told a psychiatrist that he was considering going online uh, on the Internet and buying an, a gun to protect himself from uh, friends that he perceived as threats. And the psychiatrist duly noted this in the notes, uh, but never did anything about it and never stopped it, you know. Right. And it's interesting, like he had these conversations with his girlfriends where she would check his strange ideations like, oh, no, Tommy, that's yeah. not true. And you were in contact of, you know, in your acknowledgments, you acknowledge that a lot of his friends and girlfriends were really were willing to talk about him, correct? Yeah, uh, a lot of people did not want to be associated with Tommy after this all happened. You know, uh, I, I interviewed a lot of people. I had to give them pseudonyms. Uh, his girlfriend, uh, probably the only steady girlfriend he ever had, was uh, Lila Chase, who stuck by him after this, and they're still in touch. And Lila very kindly let me use her own name because she wanted to, you know, defend him and tell the other side of Tommy, which didn't really come out at the trial. And all the adverse, uh, you know, silver spoon, spoiled brat uh, publicity that came out in the tabloid, she wanted to put the other side to it. And it is, I was looking up a lot of the people you mentioned in the book, and there, there's society pictures of him with one of his girlfriends, Rothschild. So you really yeah. can see him mixing in these kind of elite, uh, you know, Manhattan type of parties or soirees, right? Oh, absolutely. He got invited to the best things for a while. He had uh, a girlfriend, Anna Rothschild, who was much older than him, but she was a party planner and uh, had her own PR company. So she would take him around really as eye candy on her arm, you know, and she had aspirations to get him into a modeling career, but that never quite happened. But Tommy was quite content to go along with all this, you know. Right. And then there was also this, the suspicion of him uh, firebombing a house too, right? Well, that was Peter Smith. After they fell out and everything, there was a restraining order where he really couldn't have contact with any of with Peter Smith and his old set of friends. And uh, he approached Peter Smith uh, on the beach in the Hamptons to, to try and, you know, bury the hatchet and say, I want to be friends. And Peter Smith refused to have anything to do with him and just walked away. And a couple of weeks later, uh, his family house, house uh, mysteriously was set on fire and burned to the ground. It was a 400-year-old beautiful house in the Hamptons, and Tommy was the main prime suspect for that. Right. So I think there was like a sheet that his girlfriend recognized that might have been a sheet that he yeah. had brought from their house. I think you mentioned that. So you just yeah. see this kind of uh, fragile-minded person unraveling, and I thought it was mm. really eerie. You finished like one of your parts of the book of Tommy planning on selling his house. His, his really, can you talk about the house and what he was planning to do and why that didn't make any sense? Well, no, that was his parents' house in uh, the Hamptons, Georgia Beach. It was a beautiful, beautiful house worth millions. And Tommy didn't own it, didn't really have a stake in it whatsoever. But he found uh, 
a realtor, I think, in the Hamptons and said that he did own it, you know, and it was his and started negotiating with a view to selling it. And he could never have done it in a million years because it belonged to his parents. But uh, that just showed really how off the, the wall he was, you know. And I should add that there was a lot of mental illness in both sides of his family. His grandfather uh, committed suicide in a psych ward in the early 60s. Um, was, he was bipolar. Tommy was uh, diagnosed as schizophrenia. And he was diagnosed with many, many things, in fact. And uh, there was a history of uh, mental illness in both sides of his family. Right. So, and he, he was diagnosed, I mean, he was, he was, he had some prescriptions for like all kinds of drugs, which he either took which or he, didn't. Think. Which he never took basically for various reasons. And used drugs. So there's like another problem. Like when people with mental mm. issues doing drugs is uh, co usually compounds the problems. So what happened leading up to that January in 20, 2015? Can you talk about that? Sure. I mean, going up to about three or four months before, his parents finally decided to cut his allowance to, you know, make him stand on his own two feet. You know, he was just, he just turned 30, basically. So it's about time, one could say. Uh, and his father turned 70, I think, on New Year's Day 2015. Tommy never came to visit, never went to any party they might have had or whatever. But uh, three or four days later, on a Sunday afternoon, out of the blue, Tommy turned up at their apartment on Beekman Place um, in um, Midtown. It's a, a really, really nice area. And came out of nowhere, knocked on the door, and told his mother that he would come to talk business with his father. I should add that a, earlier that morning, his father had yet again cut his allowance. So... Tommy probably would have seen that, you know, from his bank account that it had been cut. Anyway, he turned up on the doorstep and asked his mother if she would just go and go out, get him a sandwich and a Coca-Cola and let him have a few minutes alone with his father. She went, his mother, Shelley, went out, to, you know, to get the sandwich and Coke. Uh, she sort of went around the block and Sonny she wondered if everything was going to be okay. You know, she realized that there's a lot of tension between father and son. And uh, after a couple of minutes, she suddenly decided, no, she better come back and make sure everything was okay. She came back uh, and there, I think they're on the sixth floor. She walked in the front door. Tommy was nowhere to be seen. And she walked in the bedroom and there was her husband, Tom Senior, lying on the floor uh, with a, he's been shot in the head and a gun had been placed in his hands across his chest. And she Shelley was obviously livid. She dialed 911. And that's when everything really started happening. Yeah. And it's very strange that uh, Tommy would actually, Junior would actually try to get away with it. He tried to make it look like a suicide, right? Yeah. He tried to place the gun as if it was a suicide and didn't make a run for it. He literally got back on the subway and went down to his apartment, which I think was on 12th Street downtown, uh, and holed up in his apartment, waiting for the police to come and get him, which just shows, you know, where his mind was when this was all going on. He didn't try and make a run for it whatsoever, you know. Yeah, it's all very strange. And then, like, to him even obtaining the gun and wanting to get the gun and putting in, you know, uh, video cameras because of his paranoia, just oh, very totally. strange. Yes. Mm -hmm. 
I mean, to Tommy, the whole world was against him, basically, you know, and his father embodied everything, you know. Yeah, he really just put everything on his dad. It's really a shame. So then what happened after uh, the death and how, how what progressed from there to the arrest of uh, Tommy Jr.? Well, you know, that, I think the murder was like uh, 3, 3.30 on a Sunday. Uh, the police started investigating. Uh, the mother so told them, you know, we're obviously where Tommy lived on 18th Street. So the police turned up at 18th Street uh, and they were they hold up outside and they noticed the, a light went off. So they realized he was actually in there. So it took a SWAT team, you know, and a heavily armed SWAT team to kind of uh, turn up at the door, start knocking on it. And eventually when Tommy realized, you know, he was cornered, he sheepishly opened the door and surrendered and gave himself up. And then what happened? I mean, there was an issue after his arrest, whether he was uh, cognizant, whether he was really uh, criminally liable. Or, can you talk about that? Yeah, I mean, more than an issue. I mean, this was January, I think January the 5th, 2015. For the next four years, four and a half, five years, uh, there were uh, court hearing after court hearing for incompetency. He had the best lawyers money could buy, and they managed to stall it. And there was uh, many incompetency hearings. I went to every single hearing where I got to know his mother, Shelley, very well. Uh, I'd see Tommy, and over that five years, you could just see him, you know, from this handsome six-foot-three model type. He turned into a scarecrow, basically and looked like a derelict towards the end. And he eventually came to trial, I think in uh, 2019, uh, in, the, you know, in the spring 2019, which was about five years after it had happened, four years after it had happened, sorry. All right, so they found him that he was of, of sound mind. I mean, he was unwell, but he knew what he was doing, right? Yeah. yeah, I mean, uh, after all the, uh, the testimony, whatever, ever, Everything, the smoking gun seemed to be that he asked his mother to go out and get a sandwich and a Coca-Cola. And the mother, Shelley, on stand said that they never had Coca-Cola in the house. So the jury picked up that he would have known that uh, there was no Coca-Cola. She would have had to go out to get it. So he knew what he was doing, according to them. And that's why they found he, you know, him guilty. Right. So he gets found guilty. What happens next? Uh, yeah, he's basically sentenced to the maximum. I think it's 30 years plus uh, by the judge. Uh, he's in Danamora at the moment, which is that uh, prison, you know, right outside the Canadian border. Nobody's been able to see him with COVID and everything, whatever. He, you know, uh, he thought he was under a prisoner before, you know, but I got, I, God knows what he's doing now. It must be pretty awful for him. And uh, his, you know, his friend Lila told me that they sent him a birthday present last July and they heard from the jail that he was so paranoid he wouldn't even walk across the threshold to pick up the parcel. He was too scared. So, I mean, I can't imagine, you know, how he's surviving now with, with what's going on. Yeah, no, it's very strange. Like he when he was in prep school, he was worried about things being contaminated. So he didn't want to touch sure. certain things. So like he had definitely had real bugs in his brain from an early age. 
Right. And God knows with being in prison with COVID, how that must affect him too. Yeah, it's not well, not well at all. And I mean, I've heard that the COVID, you know, went through some of those jails. I don't know about Danamora, but like, yeah, Yeah. it's supposed to be rough. Um, Really badly. So what's it like kind of looking back at him and this whole process? I mean, what kind of, I mean, what takeaways are there? It's just like how to deal with somebody in the, I mean, it was interesting because I think one of the girls in the story said she had somebody in her family who was schizophrenic. And so she was seeing that same type of behavior in Tommy, like what, what's your advice for people who have troubled family members? Well, I mean, part of the problem was talking to his mother, Shirley, was they always said that there was no way they could hold him, you know, in a mental hospital for treatment. If he didn't want to be treated, Uh, he could just walk out after 72 hours. And that was the problem, I think. You know, there was no way to hold them uh, in prison. And that's why his pres- his parents were kind of scared to try and get him held. And Tommy would not, you know, admit to anybody, least of all probably himself, that there was anything mentally wrong with him. So that was my take out, you know, really how there has to be stronger things for family to kind of hold somebody if they're mentally ill and dangerous to other people and themselves. Right. Like people were telling his family, like, hey, your son's dangerous. You know, you got to put this guy in. So that happened over and over. So all of those like I had a really uncomfortable, you know, kind of sickly feeling reading the book, like watching this develop his personality develop over time. And it's like the parents didn't have they they tried, but they just there wasn't according to the law. There was nothing they could really do. They were always saying he'd just get out in 72 hours. Right. Exactly. Yeah, That was the problem. Uh, and there was nothing really to, you know, to stop them, you know, to stop him carrying on until, uh, you know, he, he did these other Peter Smith after he beat up Peter Smith. And there was the uh, the arson and the, the house. Maybe police could have done something then, you know, but he always had the best lawyers to get him out of everything, too, because, you know, his parents had money. So that was another problem, I think, you know, right, if was he wasn't whole- a rich kid. Yeah. No, you. I mean, you wrote in your book. He, um, they had the restraining order, and then his attorney showed up. I think Spiro and and made sure everything was under seal forever, right? So that never exactly. came out to the public. Yeah, I tried everything to get the papers, but uh, you know, <laughs> I couldn't. Well, right? Who London. knows what else? Right? Who knows what else has happened? To be honest with you, I mean, exactly. You know, you don't know what happened at his high school, college, Princeton. Yeah. What other I mean, kind one of, of the one of the things where I got lucky was, you know, I, I was, you know, I went to every court hearing. I got to know everybody. And uh, I managed to get uh, some of the papers. His father, Tommy's senior, kept a computer diary where he would kind of mull over his son, the problems and how to deal with them. And he'd write all this down on his computer. And the police found all this on his computer. And I got access to them, which I was able to incorporate into the book. So I think it was a unique way where you could actually see, you know, the time. It's like a time bomb where he's writing about his son and the danger he thinks he's everybody's in because of it and what he should do about it. Little thinking that Tommy would one day kill him. So this was kind of a unique uh, slant on it, having his father's personal diary, I think. Yeah, no, I think that's that's true. Like uh, you, you can see those little inputs in your throughout the book, interspersed. Like here it is, here I'm a dim today. What am I trying to figure out? They really did try. I mean, I think they. You got to give. I mean, it ended up in a yeah. tragedy. 
really kind of an American tragedy in a way. This uh, by all outward signs, just Absolutely. like the perfect family, perfect pedigree, perfect education, tons exactly. of money. Yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. um, what happened to the sister? Do you know if the sister kind of how did she come out after all this stuff? Well, to be honest, uh, the Shelley's mother did not not ever put the sister out. She never came to a court hearing. Uh, although the defense really wanted to put her on the stand, she could have been a very uh, valuable witness for the defense, but uh, she never appeared or anything. They just shielded her, you know, from everything. So I really know very little about what happened there. And Interesting. And, uh, yeah, did they end up selling that house, uh, that, what, eight, Guernica, yeah. Uh, Georgica? Yeah, they sold, yeah, Georgica Drive. Yeah, that was sold. Uh, she had to. I think it was heavily mortgaged too, you know. Right. So, like, yeah, they were kind of uh, not doing great when the the whole situation went down. Um, yeah. What? Where's the best place for people to get this book, Golden Boy? Well, you can get it at uh, Amazon.com, Barnes and Noble, uh, all bookstores and things. And my uh, my publisher. Macmillan also have it on their website for sale. So it's sort of available everywhere. And it's it done has. really well. I mean, yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's a best-selling book. Second, yeah, second, third printing at the moment. So I'm very happy there. Yeah, congratulations. I think it has like, when I last checked, it was 424 five-star reviews on Amazon. So uh, congratulations. Thank you. It's awesome. also, I should add, it's also been optioned for a movie by a company in Hollywood, which I'm oh, waiting to hear. So they've, they've optioned it. So fingers, fingers crossed. Fingers there. crossed. Well, hopefully it'll, it'll be one of the, you know, the, one of those ones that actually gets made. Hopefully that I would definitely be interested right. in seeing that. I mean, there's a lot yeah. of themes in this film that are very, or your book that are very American, but mm. uh, you know, families rise and fall, right? I was going to Hawthorne say that. Yeah. Um, and again, your website is johnglatt.com. Yes, www.johnglatt.com. Yeah, it's got all my books on there, yeah. And it's got links to buy them, too, so on there. Two T's, T-L-A-double-T. Excellent. And if people John, want to reach out to you, contact information is there, right? Yes, they can reach out to me directly through it. Excellent. And again, the title of the book is Golden Boy, A Murder Among the Manhattan Elite, published July 2021, and the author is John Glatt. So, John, thank you so much for your time. My pleasure. Thank you. Right. Stay there. Stay there. All right, cool.